0: Hey, folks, and welcome to the Deconstructor of Fun podcast. I'm your host, Mishka Katkov, and today I'm joined by Vladimir Krasilnikov, Chief Product Officer at Pixonic. And if you don't know Pixonic, well, Pixonic is the developer behind War Robots. And War Robots is the world's biggest tactical shooter. It's bigger than World of Tanks on Mobile. Recently, War Robots crossed 500 million in gross revenue, and they did it with only 185 million installs across all platforms. In this episode, Vladimir and I are going to talk about how the game got started, um, how big was the team at the start, and what did the game look like when they launched the game for the first time and most importantly we're going to focus on their live operations how they were able to turn around the game that didn't look that promising at the beginning to something that has grossed half a billion till date so i hope you enjoy this podcast i truly enjoyed recording it learned a lot and if you feel that we've earned all five stars please do give it to us and if there's some feedback send it our way so without further ado Shoutouts to our fantastic sponsors, Facebook, IronSource, Knapslyer, and of course, the conversation with Vladimir Krasidnikov. This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash dof. For in-depth educational materials including playbooks, webinars, blogs and reports as well as great video content
1: I think what's what's become clearer certainly in the last few years as competition in the game industry has really stepped up is that there's a fundamental difference between a great game and a great game business you know you could be super lucky you your game is an instant hit it's resonating with users but for when that's not the case uh, or even when you just want to take your game growth to the next level that's where we come in. So we've developed a really incredible platform that's designed to make you as powerful and as capable as possible in growing your game, whether that's growing your game revenue or growing your user base.
0: That was Melissa Zeloff, VP of Marketing at IronSource. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. Flyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where Flyer's latest product, the Incrementality Solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. Flyer's Incrementality Solution is built around remarketing, it simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, increman- with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsliers.com. So, uh, War Robots has crossed 400 million in gross revenue and 185 million install across all platforms after seven years since being released. It's the world's biggest tactical shooter. It has launched before the Battle Royale boom that started in 2018, and it doesn't seem to be affected much by the Battle Royale boom. And luckily we have Vladimir Krasilnikov here to talk about the uh, the story of War Robots till date and in the future. So Vladimir, welcome to the show.
1: Hi guys, hi Michael, thank you for having me. <laughs>
0: um, so can you tell a little bit about yourself and what do you do at Pixonic? Uh,
1: sure, um, right now, actually, uh... I am uh, chief product officer of the company, which means that I try to coordinate uh, the strategy, the product strategy of the company and uh, how exactly we are going to develop and to grow uh, our different games and projects. Um, but uh, that's kind of the, you know, manager side. <laughs> uh, I also have my passionate product side where I am um, uh, producer of the specific uh, game, but I can't you, tell you exactly what <laughs> the game is, but I hope that uh, the time that it will be released, you'll like it. Oh, awesome. Uh, how, how long have you been working at Pixonic? Uh, I came here in 2015, in September, and uh, that was kind of uh, the... It was the time when I understand, understood that uh, this game, War Robots, has a very much, uh, a lot of potential, but mm-hmm. it is still undervalued by the game community and, and by the market. Yeah.
0: So, so, okay, so the game had launched already and it was kind of yeah. in the beginning of it. And I remember because I was playing a lot World of War, uh, World of Tanks Blitz, Mm-hmm. and world of robots uh, it was world of walking robots but
1: walking world uh, yeah, the, 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 the first name was that
0: yeah when, uh, when the game came in it was quite similar but with robots and with a meta game with a couple of like super important improvements first of all uh, there was a sort of a crafting timer mechanic, so there was mm-hmm. a clear way to come back to the game because every time you got some money from the battle, you would put it into your uh, your robot, and mm-hmm. that would improve. So you would have a reason to come back, just like in CSR Racing. And the second, I think, really important change compared to the sort of a uh, wargaming approach was that you would take several uh, robots or several vehicles into a battle. And what that opens up is you're not playing with only one and then the match is over. You're actually going through um, three different robots, and that both puts more investment into a different type of robots, but also makes every battle... little bit more st- uh, tactical not strategic maybe but tactical because you can change with which robot you start and which is the second robot you respond with so you can you can coordinate with a team and and decide of, of like how you're gonna approach so exactly I think, yeah yeah uh, uh,
1: actually uh, Michael you're talking about kind of an ancient history for me because uh, uh, some of the things I can remember some of them I can remember from the birds of other guys. And uh, I must say that the initial product, uh, the first prototype of the game that was developed, it was developed by completely different people. It was um, made externally out of Pixonic and Pixonic at the time was uh, trying to publish the game. But, The CEO of the company, uh, Philip Gladkov, at the time, he realized uh, that this game has a lot of potential and we actually bought the project into the company in the game. Uh, You're right that uh, we were released uh, about the same time World of Tanks Blitz. Uh, Actually, if I remember correctly, it was one month earlier than them. Uh, And um, in the beginning, it was like tanks, but it, it was a mix of ideas. It, uh, they have ideas from factions from World of Tanks. Uh, there were uh, upgrading system from Clash of Clans and uh, this new type of uh, hangar management uh, that I don't know exactly where it came from directly, uh, but uh, if you if you ask, funny thing that do you know why we had twelve levels of upgrades in the beginning of, of the game? Yeah, probably twelve town hall levels of Clash of Clans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. the, the idea was uh, taken from Clash of Clans, and uh, it just it was perceived like some kind of magic number at the time.
0: Got it. So it's basically that's a, that's a, I mean this is how games are made it's going to be world of tanks but with robots with mechs world of tanks with mechs with clash clash of clans meta green light <laughs> something <laughs> so, like that exactly <laughs> and with the, with the one innovation of taking three into a battle instead of one which is i still consider that was one of the best moves in
1: terms of like changing yeah. the core gameplay it, it's true uh, that, and at, at the time yeah. it wasn't perceived as a game changer at all and uh, it was um, it was made um, somehow more uh, impulsively than deliberately: Yes,
0: and I'm, and I'm here just showing like. I play a lot of, (laughs) I think, I think wargaming is like everybody who's, who's from Russia or that area loves everything wargaming related. I'm born in St. Petersburg. I love world of warships, which is probably makes me the core audience for that game. So that's why I played the, I I played with the mechs, but I'm like, I don't know. I kind of like the uh, other ships more, (laughs) but, but I, but I understand that the mechs is definitely a more broader appeal because I don't know that there's that many people who enjoy tanks specifically other than russians i think that's a that's a very close close thing. well
1: well european audience actually yeah. love tank games because really? uh, yeah uh, they still have this connection to world war ii which mm-hmm. was basically a tank war in yeah. many aspects and uh uh I know that uh, World of Tanks has um, a big community in United States. I'm not sure about Asian games, but what's the big difference for us? Uh, we, we, we've discovered early when the project was uh, released uh, that uh, uh, we are uh, fond of by uh, Japanese players and by US players a lot. Yeah, yeah and,
0: and I think it's just, it's yeah, when thinking about the audience, of course, I haven't seen uh, the wargaming's audience research, which I would love to see. <laughs> by, by any means, I, I know a little bit about the other uh, world of warships audience, and it's naturally the the people who live close by by the sea and have some kind of a naval history. So, of course, the Japanese, the Russians, the Americans, the uh, the English. Uh, but um, but with the tanks, like I don't, I don't. I know that Russians are the most fond of tanks, but then, then again, when I think about the mechs, it's really a broad, a much broader audience uh, because it's much. Uh, I would assume that it's also a little bit of a younger audience that is that is interested in in tanks, in in mechs. And what the core game of mechs is also much more simplified. It's um it's way more sort of a pay to win when you upgrade your stuff it becomes more powerful and as Mm -hmm. you become more powerful you can jump into the level and destroy others so it makes total sense and and i think that really helps with the younger audience and also the shooting is much more easier you don't have to stop aim shoot you can just walk shoot rockets shoot machine guns shoot cannons so were those the kind of elements that that when you were playing the game early on you felt that there's a lot of potential in this game
1: uh, walking mechanics, I think, play a crucial role here, because um, uh, in the early prototypes of World of Tanks Blitz, I know that they had this kind of uh, controls where when you use the sticker to move it left, the tank steers left, it doesn't go left, mm-hmm. like uh, we, sh- we we expect intuitively yeah. from the walking uh, vehicles, if you-, if you can say that. Um, yeah. Uh, So, yeah, I think that Mac controls are much more intuitive and uh, are a bit easier, Um, probably shooting also, and uh, the very, very important thing that we had, uh, from we, that we tried to focus from the beginning is that uh, since we are free to play game, we must offer benefits to paying players in our that's game. That's good. That's very important.
0: Yeah, that, that's that. And for those who haven't been playing wargaming games. don't offer that much you can get a short benefit but mainly it's the subscription that gives you like you have to subscribe subscribe you have to be a vip player to play wargaming otherwise you're not making any progress but if you decide to purchase an expensive vehicle in wargaming games it doesn't help you you will be just put into a tier with a lot of other very powerful players and you might not be even as good to play against them despite having Mm -hmm. a a sort of like a vip vehicle so a lot of a lot of really good updates to make it much more better as a free-to-play game, I do have to say. So, Uh,
1: yeah. I I Um. can add here that uh, from the beginning, Pixonic was a data-driven company because we had uh, actually a product, our own analytics system at Matter that we uh, we wanted to use it as a product for, for the market. Uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, we decided uh, to focus on games and it helped us a lot. For instance, uh, this kind of example illustrates um, how data uh, changed our behavior. Like we saw a great cohort of uh, players, paying players, that actually made a big purchase inside the game and left it the next day. Uh, we wanted to dig it, we, we want mm-hmm. to analyze this kind of behavior, and we understood that actually uh, that's that, that's what our matchmaking system does. Uh, since they are purchasing a robot that is much more powerful than they have right now, mm. the matchmaking uh, goes by power, and they grow to the much higher uh, tier of matchmaking than they were before, where players are already prepared to fight uh, on this kind of mechs. And uh, they, uh, the, the, from, from the players, uh, paying players perspective, it looks like this. I bought a Mac, very powerful <laughs> Mac. I launched the game and suddenly I don't feel its power at all. I, I, I'm getting killed all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yeah, I, I totally understand that. Um, and, and that's why we changed the, the matchmaking system to, to the other one.
0: And, and those are fascinating thing. Like you, you've been in product for what, probably 10 years now and oftentimes those are the type of things that actually affect monetization and retention better than some kind of an offer that is well targeted and well made and and so forth. It's really like understanding to a detail the player experience and then improving that and that drives the monetization. So just uh, uh, that's a a really great example. So um, Vladimir, I wanted to ask you about about the uh, the start of the game. So you said Mm -hmm. initially it was made by an external studio.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so ba- so you, the Epixonic guys had the idea for the game and then uh, they outsourced to a different studio or how did it work?
1: No, no, they, they came to us uh, as a game publisher. Uh, we, we, um, at the time, uh, the company tried to publish other games but they had very little experience in that and we didn't have any successful case here. Mm-hmm. And uh, they came to us, they needed money to continue development of the game. And uh, they pitched the game to our management. Uh, the, I think that they got more than they hoped because the the, pro- the project was bought. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't just publishing. They yeah. bought the team. And uh, we. it was the time of growth of the company. Um, at the time, the company had... Uh, like um, uh, 30 employees and uh, after a year there were 150 of them so it it was a very rapid growth of the company wow so so the uh, the team that was
0: originally making walking war robots was about 30 people and they had probably something of a vertical Uh, oh.
1: 30 people is the whole uh, oh the whole Pixonic. yeah got yeah. it got it so there was a small
0: the, the, team that, that was developing was the
1: team like four or two people something like that the prototype was made by two people
0: okay wow and um and what what was the uh what, what was the extent of what the project of the project when the two people came in and showed it, it was just walking uh, robots shooting
1: yeah uh they had one uh mech uh one map and uh, i think four or three types of weapons and uh the premise the initial idea was that we make a realistic mech fighting game on mobile uh but uh it, the company actually was in a pretty des- desperate state at the time and we had to publish the game uh, almost immediately we had to release it very early that's why the game was had, had very little features at the time we didn't have clan system we didn't have uh, a lot of content uh we just needed some uh, some proof that this uh, this uh, product can help us to grow the company okay
0: they, well that's that's usually the case in these type of thing and it was very bare bone like you only had five robots, nine weapons uh, and how did you know that that was enough to prove the concept that this game works? And um, <laughs> you know, like, like what were the numbers question. you were looking at? What were you like, like, I don't think, is that enough for day 30? I mean, it could be, it was also uh, a different type in the market, but but what were the
1: KPIs you were looking at? I must say that at the time we didn't have a choice we just had to publish it. We we couldn't wait because the, the company would go bankrupt uh, if we didn't make it. So so uh, it, it's kind of similar to, you know, the story of the Final Fantasy where, where it was the, the last project. Um, uh, and uh, right now, uh, from, from this perspective, I can see that this was a very, um, uh, at, the t- at the time, uh, the mobile market uh, was very, uh, had very little shooters there. Uh, there were practically none of them. And uh, this was the time when you can release all the game almost in a prototype stage, and it doesn't uh, uh, feel underdeveloped because you don't have a lot of competition most of the developers, mobile developers at the time, they were focused on Clash of Clans kind of games, strategy games, card battlers, uh, uh, but there were very few shooters. We didn't have competition at the time. And this left us a big window of opportunity, which was seized by, by War Robots. And that, World of Tanks,
0: did, was World of Tanks out by that time? The Blitz? No.
1: No, no, no. Oh, it, uh, even it, out by it, then. it was it was released one month after the release of Walking Worlds. So basically at the same time. Yeah.
0: Okay, that's that's interesting. So you released the game and, and how did you know that the game was you know, was successful? Or did it take a significant time before you realized the success? Like was it retaining particularly well? Was the marketing cost really low? Uh, oh. Did you get early monetization? Like, what were the num- what, what were the other uh, things
1: that were showing? Mm-hmm. I have to say that the early numbers were pretty bad. Uh, like, we had day one retention at twenty three percent, I think, uh, which is uh, if we uh, released uh, or soft launched the game with this kind of retention right now, I would vote for closing it. <laughs> uh, but uh we really believed in the product and uh, we noticed that uh, although a small number of players stays in the game a core audience goes uh, into the game and they at, right from the very beginning they form the core of the fans they discussed the game a lot on uh, forums uh, they but provided us with a lot of feedback uh, uh, they made youtube videos from the game uh, in a very very early stage and that's what made us uh, thinking that probably we should continue we should develop this game but um, a big part yeah. of this decision was that we didn't had
0: much of a choice. Yeah, yeah, that's and that's usually it because when you have too many choices, it's really easy to kill new games. Yeah. But when you don't have, you're back against the wall and you're pushing through. So that's that makes it really exciting. Um, I've actually seen. Uh, back in the days long time ago there was uh, there was a publisher that was working in russia i mean i think they still are working in russia mm-hmm. and they were proposed to to publish war robots back in the days and they also looked at the uh, the early retention they said no this game is not successful but later on when the game became successful they actually looked at again at the numbers and they were showing that even the starting point is much lower the mm-hmm. long-time retention is far better and yeah. but in the beginning they were comparing it to their own games that were more casual and of course with the comparison with a casual game these type of strategy or you know tactical shooter games look like disasters like absolutely horrible so true, my question true. is like how did you understand to look into this sort of a, a core audience like how were you able to pick apart uh, the mm-hmm. core audience and, and, and go from it. And were you able to then target maybe that type of core audience, create lookalike audiences in Facebook marketing and, and, and target that type of, like, how were you able to grow it? Because a lot of times in my experience, like being in different studios, when these type of project would come in and they have poor numbers, the game team always says like, well, listen, the numbers as a whole might be poor, <laughs> but There is a small segment that likes this game. And usually executives sound like, I don't care about this small segment. I need a (laughs) lot of people to like this game. But in this case, a small segment liked this game. And in the end, it makes 500 million. Like, how did you you know that?
1: Uh, We didn't. We didn't know that from the beginning. Um, uh, That's why I love game dev industry as a whole, because it constantly uh, proves that someone's... um, if, if you think that someone is impossible, the next guy uh, will prove that you're wrong. Uh, that what happened to World of Tanks, uh, because nobody believed that uh, in the age of MMORPGs, someone could uh, really like playing not the human character, but tank character. And uh, that's what happened to us. In the beginning, we tried to develop the game as a usual mobile game at the time. We tried to increase our uh, fast LTV, and uh, uh, we we tried to add some uh, uh, starter packs, uh, some features to monetize the the players early. And we spent really a lot of time doing that. Uh, Some of that worked, some of that didn't work. And uh, the time has passed. Uh, we, we managed to somehow increase our LTV, but uh, after a year and a half of the operations, we found that a very big part of fans actually stick to the game for like really long time with really big numbers, and uh, this was uh, this was not. Typical, usual for the mobile market. This what usually happens to big platforms like PC or console games, and uh, we wanted to to make some uh, choices out of that to make some options what we what we can do to help this uh, to the, for for the growth of the game and the company, and we decided uh, to change. The strategy of distributing the content in the game. Uh, We changed that. um, In the beginning, there were uh, very much tank-like system with light, medium, and heavy max, and they all um, uh, they all they all work together like light max kill heavy max, heavy max kill medium max, medium max. skill light max, but uh, we found that a lot of players don't like uh, heavy mechs because they are very, very slow, and they go, um, if you pick the heavy mech right from the beginning of the match and you just uh, walk to the middle of the map, you, you go there and half of the match literally goes of the time. You, you, you just walked to the middle of the map. That was a very big problem, we made them faster, but this triangle, it it had been broken after that. So we needed a new approach to making new content, and and we picked uh, a new strategy from MOBA games at the time, uh, where characters are usually not just their visual uh, appeal, but also their abilities. Uh, their key abilities, which makes the character. And uh, that's how we distribute uh, and make the game content, uh, content up till now. Uh, every mech uh, is, um, before that, the mech was a type light, heavy, medium, mm-hmm. and the combination of weapon slots on them. And uh, after, I think, 2017 we made uh, mechs uh, like they have Characters. this combination of weapon slots and their unique abilities that don't have other Max. in this way we could make much more new content in the game yeah. because it... uh, b- before that we actually tried all the possible combinations with the type light like heavy medium and kind of uh we-, we couldn't add any more game content was it uh um
0: it's been a it's been a hot second and i played um world, <laughs> world of war robots so forgive me for this but how does the how does the matchmaking work i mean matchmaking on all these games must be a, an absolute nightmare but um but how does the matchmaking work in in your game because in world of warships or tanks it's tier based yeah so how does it work here especially since you have three mechs at the same time
1: uh you're right that it's very hard to understand uh, the power of the hangar. It's very easy to understand the power of the uh, one mech, but it's very hard to understand the power of the whole hangar. You can't just add up the power of every mech, because the first mech people play, they usually get more time than the last one. Uh, they can play the whole match and didn't spawn the last mech, in there in in the match so uh you, you can't make it average because um then people abuse it they make one very strong mac and others very very uh, low powered and that's how they abuse matchmaking system uh in the end we actually decided to drop Uh, the gear score out of the equation at all we just um, uh, our matchmaking system now is based on the rating which is based totally on players performance whether they are winning or whether they are losing the game and that's all
0: got it so okay makes sense so it went purely on the elo rating uh
1: kind of uh the, the ELO has its problem problems, of course, because you know the idea of the ELO hell when a player can't get out. And, and this specifically uh, goes to team-based uh, games because if, if you're uh, playing dual games, ELO works perfectly, but it, it's not so good for team-based games. So let me
0: let me ask you this question: How do you approach launching games now? I mean, I know you have Dino Squad, um, mm-hmm. in it's launched, but it hasn't scaled up that big. But with previously, you were you were back against the wall; you mm-hmm. had to launch something, and you had to make it successful, despite looking at you know poor numbers. So now you have a game that is generating, mm-hmm. you know, what eighty million a year uh so you're in a comfortable place to innovate and to think about and to launch bigger games so can you talk to me about you know launching new games when you have this sort of like a one big game in a studio and by the way i do have to say with dino squad like people who have worked with me i've been pitching that idea for extremely long time they have the (laughs) decks they have everything like since 2014 i have been (laughs) pitching so i think it's a
1: fantastic idea (laughs) Uh, okay, uh, uh, the strategy of how uh, to make new games and how to publish them and, and release them consistently is one of my favorite topics. I can talk about this for hours, so if, if you feel that I'm getting uh, 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 saying something boring, you just can't stop me. But, I'll <laughs> The strategy basically goes like this. We have one project uh, developed in a prototype stage, one project developed in uh, uh, content making stage, so-called, and uh, one project in soft launch. And we try to maintain uh, this um, uh, number of games. The problem is if you're making too much effort on developing new games, then as a business, it's a very problematic decision because a lot of people in your company right now are adding up to the costs, but not adding to the profits from the business perspective. So you have to maintain proportion of people who are actually generating revenue projects that are generating revenue and projects that are going to generate revenue in future. And, uh, I, dev- I divide this by three broad stages. Uh, the first one is prototype making and um, probably you can extend that with um, uh, sh- first first playable version for real players like market players. Uh, uh, at this point of um, uh, the pro- project development stage, it doesn't have to have a lot of game content. You can have uh, gameplay just for one day, for one game session, that's all. You don't need anything more. Uh, and there you measure day one retention. Mm-hmm. This metrics just basically it gives you the idea, the overall of the overall perception of your game, how much players really like the gameplay. So do
0: you measure at that point also marketability? So you're talking about early Mm -hmm. testing. So when you start a game, the first step for you is to get to a game to probably like a Google private beta and then test marketability. So how well it's perceived and test the core gameplay essentially, how well the core retains because day one, day two, even arguably day three, it's all pretty much core gameplay.
1: That's true. And uh, this stage, is mostly magic because if anything goes wrong here you can spawn a lot of ideas a lot of hypotheses how to fix that and you can test and uh, uh, change and make amends for years for this kind of project so we we try to limit uh this to a reasonable amount which is usually uh, new projects have like three attempts. Maybe if they are very good and have the very good dynamics and growing day one retention, uh, then we, we can give you, give them another one. But it should be limited, because um, at this time uh, the development team of, team of the project um, is uh, floating in the cloud of ideas. <laughs> i have to say that it's it's kind of funny because you're saying that in the
0: beginning like the, the day 1 is so important but if we take war robots based on
1: this metric uh-huh. you would absolutely kill it that's true <laughs> and uh, that's what makes war robots a unique uh, thing but probably probably i must say that from the beginning it was not a good business it was yeah. it, it's a great game but it was not a good business <laughs> <laughs> okay so all right so we
0: got the first step and and by the way when you go to making the core game as a studio what are the uh, what are the concept validation that pixonic does when making a new game like when somebody comes in and says let me i want to start a new game i have an idea i'm thinking about robots i'm not i'm, I'm tired of of mech warriors how about we put a t-rex put a missiles and a laser gun on top of it. And then that t rex goes to a battle. Like what kind of a, what kind of a green light process do you have to kick an off new project? Is it like this uh, or, or how does it work? Like, do I have to have some kind of a market data? Do I have to have a marketability test to show you that dinosaurs is amazing idea or how, how do you approach that before actually working
1: on a um, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, playable? Uh, The first and uh, I think the most basic thing that a new project starts, that uh, you have a small team of people that actually loves this idea and they want to pitch it to everyone. Uh, So the first uh, impression is made inside the studio. We actually had game Game jams for that, uh, but now we are more tending to, to uh, expert juries I must say but it, it's still it's it, it is still a guess it, you don't have a data you, you have the data from the market but how can you use that data for the project that still doesn't exist? There are some services uh, and we, we know them on the market that actually try to test this idea but they mm, they don't see the black swans. <laughs> yeah uh, they that's come true. To it. Uh, okay so
0: then another question how do you approach new game development in the sense of there's kind of like a three things that I personally look at one is the team is excited to make something and this is what you mentioned and mm-hmm. and this excitement is is crucial because if the mm-hmm. team is not excited to make it then they will just There'll be like an external production. The
1: project will be gone like in
0: weeks. Yeah, the good idea even doesn't matter. It's like an external production. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: The second part is, is there a demand in the market? So that's usually with different kind of testing or you can do different kind of hypothesis to show that this this makes sense. Um, It could be multiple different things. You don't have to use services. Like, I don't know, we use Geek Lab at my studio uh, as well as 12 12 Traits, but there could be other services to do that. Uh, Sensor Tower or whatever app, uh, you mm-hmm. might be using to get the data but the third thing is what is your team or your studio's capabilities or as a publisher what are your capabilities meaning like what kind of game can you make and what kind of game you can grow uh, um, exactly so so how do you uh, see that important.
1: because yeah it, it's very important to take into the equation uh what games can you actually make what games are, do you have expertise because uh uh we we, we now i must uh uh, assure you that we have a lot of expertise in mobile shooters that's for sure but we don't have a lot of expertise in for instance um racing games and we tried to do them we we had actually a project of a racing game and we tested it on the market and uh, after some time we actually had to close it because we didn't have uh, much progress with it uh so you're right. The second part of the equation is what can you make? And the third one is what people actually want. And that's where the market research can help you. And that's where you can use marketing art or uh, some, some, some uh, kind of early uh, proof of concepts to, to try to use them. It, it's usually a very bad idea to make a game that no one made before. Because you have to ask yourself why no one made it before.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, I've done that and uh, <laughs> learned it the hard way. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so that is a very, very valid, valid thing. Um, okay, so now it's probably clear for everybody in Pixonic that if you're making a game, it most likely is a PvP game. Am I correct?
1: Uh, yes, uh, we don't have. Uh, A lot of expertise in making story based games. And uh, if you don't make uh, a PvP game, if you make a a game for a single player or um, a co op game, then you have a very different, uh, I would say, model of playing. Uh, You have um, much less re- re- replayability because in PvP game players actually uh, serve as a content to each other. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, you you that... can play the same mech over and over again because you are playing against the different players. That's true.
0: The other side of, of making a PvP game is that matchmaking is so difficult that you may never get it right. So so unlike, and, and, unlike with content...
1: Yeah, and network code is also, is also a very uh, strong um, yeah. thing. I remember a PC game, uh, maybe you heard about it. Um, the, the name was Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law. No. Uh, it, it was a very cool game, a very cool concept of a shooter game where players uh, shoot at each other and they actually steal mass from characters. Like if you're shooting into the head, uh, then the head of the target goes smaller and your head goes bigger. And uh, that's made a very interesting uh, auto-balancing gameplay. Because uh, if you support it by level design, uh, some characters can go through the um, uh, ways that other players can't. And that's a very interesting thing. But on the start of the game, they had a big problem. They didn't actually get the network code working in a very good way.
0: Yeah, yeah. And then, then there's the whole balancing. Of course, with a with a tactical shooter like your like like the one you've made, you have a clear monetization because players are getting more powerful. There are timers, there are resources, and so they're spending those. And it's it's a very uh, clear monetization. But in a sort of a modern a pvp shooter what are you going to monetize on it's mainly cosmetics and then now you need a significant amount of players to make enough money through cosmetics and also you need to be pushing more and more cosmetics through uh, battle passes and and other type of features so it's actually pretty expensive to run and they don't make that much money per player um so
1: i would as- say that uh cosmetics based uh, monetization system is a weapon of choice for a very, very big projects. Exactly. Uh, projects that are not the games, but cultural phenomena for the mm-hmm. society. In yeah. this case, the, the appearance of your character becomes very important because everyone plays that game. And what, what, how, how can you know f- from the development stage that your project will go that big? you can't. Yes. Yeah. yeah no. So I would say that steel power monetization is a safe choice. I
0: agree. I agree. And that's where a lot of mobile games collapsed because they were trying to compete against, you know, the Riot that was already set and they're trying to come in with their insignificant monetization and compete against that one and and I think that's where a lot of battle royale games were failing because they were trying to do the Fortnite, the PUBG model without actually having, you know, 100 million MAU. And um, it's, it's definitely more challenging to make enough money to sustain and let alone to grow. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so you have a, you have a very, very powerful model where you can actually have good unit economics, even at a lower DAU and continue growing through that point. But at the same time, you're probably acquiring at the, at the cost of a, of a shooter audience.
1: Yeah. And uh, uh, you, you have, um, this one more uh, strong point of the power monetization system is that uh, it is it works nice in team based games the bigger the teams are it works better because for a player that made a purchase his power is obvious he mm-hmm. kills everyone but for players that face that player they 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 face him only once per 10 players so it doesn't very uh, game-breaking for them. Hmm. How, how, do you, how does your community react to,
0: you know, most of the developers are always afraid of making pay-to-win. This is not pay-to-win. This is not pay-to-win. Um, like it's some kind of a rule that if your game is not pay-to-win, mm-hmm. it's a good game. Even though we know if we look at the top 100, <laughs> most of the games are pay-to-win down yep. to Candy Crush. So, so, so how, how, does, how is your community, which is the PVP tactical shooter community, how do they react to, uh, to a game that is clearly pay to win?
1: Uh, we don't afraid, of, we aren't afraid of it. And uh, I think that um, uh, the image of the company as the greedy guys actually unties our hands here. Uh, A lot of uh, game companies are afraid uh, to make pay-to-win games because they have a reputation. For instance, um, what if Larian Studios would make a pay-to-win game? That would be a very big problem for them. They are totally premium uh, based model. They they are paid, uh, they, they sell games before players can actually try them. And very um, big part of their success goes on their reputation. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah and we see we see companies like Riot really you know in a way struggling with their with their latest game because they have been so good at being so extremely not even fair but generous towards the players. And they've built this whole um, ethos of being extremely generous and just giving, an abundance of content because they have been able to afford it with league of Legends being one of the biggest games in the world. But as you're launching new games like legends of rune or, or team fight tactics, not making, not monetizing and kind of expecting players to, to, you know, to, to pay for the, uh, for the cosmetics is not see, you know, it doesn't seem to be working for them because the unit economics are just not there to allow the games to grow.
1: Yeah. And, uh, that's uh, th- that's why um i think the core of this free-to-play philosophy is that uh, you don't have to be afraid to ask for players money but in in exchange you have to provide him with a very uh interesting and fun in-game experience that's what's the thing it does it, it is not the problem if you ask for money The problem is if you ask for money and you don't provide fun experience, that's where the problem is. Or for instance, if you provide fun experience and you don't ask for money, in this case, you also have this kind of problem because your project will be closed in several months. I don't know.
0: Yeah, well, depends on how much money your other projects are making. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. of course, Um,
1: some, some, some publishers, some developers can sustain this kind of projects for years. And that good for them.
0: Yeah. So so talk to me about about live ops. So war war robots has has been doing great with live ops. What is the uh, how how much the team size has grown? What are you focusing in your live ops? And um and overall, like what does the organization look like for robots now that it's mm-hmm. in the uh, in the live service
1: mode? Uh, okay. Uh, I can probably I can say here that uh, we have. An ideal uh, model for a new robot, and his uh, life on the in-game market from the birth to his death.
0: Yeah, and you can say anything on this podcast. Just ask <laughs> you. <two. laughs> uh,
1: in the in the beginning, in the beginning, uh, nobody has that robot, and that's why uh, a lot of games and ours is not uh, an exception from that. Uh, wants to advertise it as much as possible and new robot has to be effective. It doesn't have to be overpowered. Uh, Maybe it can provide some experience that other robots can't provide. For instance, um, if you don't have a jump robot in the game and if you make a jump robot, it is not too much powerful but it provides a totally different quality of experience. You now can jump before before that and that changes the game for you you have new tactical moves before like you can uh, jump over the obstacles uh fire your weapons and go back uh behind the obstacles um, um this um, start of the robot uh if it is very successful then uh, people start to bite uh and start to to use it in the game and usually it is in the beginning it is provided totally as a premium service uh and uh, we can actually see its effectiveness from the analytics system it, it's like if uh, this robot has higher win rate or more average dps uh than than the other ones and uh, but at the time, it's a very small niche of players use it. So uh, if uh, we 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 try to distribute it uh, um, to broader audiences through more um, uh, more uh, less valuable for us tools like discounts, for instance, uh, or uh, uh, some, uh, long, uh, battle passes where in the end, you can actually earn that robot in the game. So, so and
0: basically when, when you introduce a new robot, it's mm-hmm. powerful, uh, but it's how, how do you make sure that it's, it's powerful, but
1: it is exclusive.
0: Yeah. But how do you make sure that it's exclusive, that it's scarce?
1: uh in the beginning it's usually the, exclu- the the exclusiveness here is provided by the uh, totally premium experience you can't actually get it in the game in the beginning you just have to to, to pay for it in the very uh, very, got it, very got beginning it. So,
0: so oh interesting so when you introduce a new robot you naturally look at your power curves of dps and and health and all of this and you you see and all the abilities that you have in the game you're like you know what we're making this character this, this robot, it's going to be really good because it's low health and it's really fast, but you can jump over the, the buildings and then you can shoot at the other robots. You can cause a lot of damage and we're going to sell a premium. It's going to be 25 bucks each.
1: But, but the important thing that you mentioned before, the perception of the community. If you sell power just for money, the community mm-hmm. will perceive it as a negative thing in the game. Mm-hmm. So we can actually kind of dodge this by... Uh, uh, players can actually earn this robot by playing but it takes a lot of time and Got it. we we know from the very beginning that uh, if we release this robot now players that actually earned it will get it in three months for instance mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's the earliest how they can get it and and you and you also don't sell pure power but
0: you sell more like abilities am i correct
1: yeah like uh, like there's a now, uh, uh, the, the concept that we try to um, uh, to make as a pillar of the game design is the power spikes, mm-hmm. context power spikes. Uh, the, I think the best example of this is the Ares robot in our game. Uh, when it was released, it had a tremendous ability of invulnerability for a few seconds. And after that, if you remain on the open land, you'll be dead. You, you mm. have to to make a move and uh, go uh, and hide behind the obstacles to reload this uh, ability of the robot. Got it, got it, okay. And um, what does your content cadence look
0: like? Like in terms of new, mm-hmm. so, so in, in terms of three things, one is big features, so. That could be, like, I remember at one point when I was playing, you added, like, a, a third resource that you have to craft inside a different station. So, so, like, a you know, a big, big feature in the game. The second is um, new robots, and the third is new maps. So, what, is, mm-hmm. what does the cadence look like for those three?
1: Uh, new maps, we don't monetize them at all. It's a purely uh, players' fun thing mm-hmm. in that is actually it distributed evenly among yeah. all the players but, but how often do
0: you make them because they add variability to it so I'm, I'm more asking like how in a in let's say in a quarter how many new robots how many new maps how many okay. new features
1: okay uh it, it depends from year to year and um, uh, for instance in uh, 2018 and 2019 we have not much maps at the time and we produced like uh uh, i think four maps something like that per year Mm -hmm. Uh, maps is the very expensive thing (laughs) yeah exactly exactly
0: exactly a lot of testing uh well you can outsource map Mm -hmm. but you need to still test them a
1: lot to test them a lot and you can uh, you should make level design inside uh, the company you can outsource art production for the map yes but, yeah. Uh, uh, as for uh, robots uh, of course this is the main uh, thing that is actually a seller in War Robots uh, so we try to make uh, them a lot like 12 robots per year but the problem is that We have a lot of robots in the game already. And uh, with every next robot, it's harder to sell them to players because they have big hangers. Uh, The thing that helps us to sell new robots is actually um, in-game events when you try to uh, shift the balance and you try to change the rules of the game modes in a way that supports new new game content. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, so, about, how
0: about big features uh,
1: I, I would say that we try to make big features to uh, every big uh, holidays like new year like uh, uh, Chinese new year for instance mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's called in the game lunar new year yeah. even A- though you have been
0: kicked out of, of Chinese app store
1: yeah exactly
0: you still do the new year for them
1: (laughs) well a lot of players we have uh, are uh, from asia and uh, you know that uh, uh, asian new year is not celebrated purely in china of course of course in in other countries yeah in
0: other in in it's as a lunar new year in the in around asia and of course, there's a lot of Chinese outside China, so yeah, <laughs> so especially those using uh, App Store. But Black Friday,
1: Black Friday, Halloween, yeah. and, all, all and you're stuff.
0: reapplying to to get back to the uh, the Chinese app stores. But it's the uh, I forgot what it's called. It's the, uh, the the license that you need to have. Um, essentially, you have to work with, <laughs> with Tencent or Netties to get back. So, <laughs> good luck with that. It's bro.
1: it's it's such a difficult thing. We actually <laughs> go to get this license for have been going have been going mm-hmm. for this like for three years from. Oh yeah, now you're on. you're
0: not getting it. Like this is of course not like as long as you're not published by a chinese company you're not getting it i mean
1: just no we we, would actually try to work with chinese companies it is still a problem still yeah which one uh well, yeah, I, I don't know if I can leave say <laughs> the name. <laughs>
0: so, do not work with that company that can't get war robots published in China. Despite <laughs> promising of getting war robots. <laughs> no,
1: no the, the problem is not in the company itself. The problem is that uh, Chine, Chinese government uh, yeah. regulates very much uh, their yes. own domestic yeah. market. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's um, I, I know it's a, it's a tough tough
0: nut to crack for sure. That's true. Um, all right, so so how
1: big is the team running live operations uh the team is actually pretty big uh uh-huh. right now i think uh, we have uh, up to uh s- since right now i i'm working on another project mm-hmm. i don't know exactly how many people work there but i think that there are um, about 80 people so 80 people like, that's, that's not yeah, bad that's, that's, it's, it's that's... a big team
0: yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very good size live operation team. And where is Pixonic located?
1: Uh, we are located in Moscow, but the pandemic changed uh, this kind of rules. So now I must say that we are located all, all over Russia. <laughs> <laughs>
0: now you're all in Tarkov. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> the offices are <have> moved. <laughs> um, so, uh, okay. So com- companies go yeah. uh, uh, remote working Uh, in a a very cruel and uh, mm, (laughs) very difficult way but we we had to learn it like everybody else
0: yeah I I think uh, I can't imagine this especially driving live well I don't know which one is more difficult to make a new game while being everybody external or keep on running live game I would maybe assume that live is easier because you already have all the processes set up but especially with new game development uh, everybody being dispersed is tough but luckily russia has arguably the best vaccine at least according to the russian <laughs> <laughs> russian officials yeah. sputnik is the way to go <laughs> so i used it uh, you use it and you yeah. and you're exactly. covid free so here's yeah. here's one out of one everything worked <laughs> so so um, all right, and and everybody's in Moscow. Okay, that's that's interesting. And do you use a lot of outsourcing for um, for, for for the team?
1: Well, we, we mainly use outsource for art production um, mm-hmm. because um, that's the thing that, that you can actually outsource uh, without much difficulties. Uh, the The key thing here is that you have to have your own art vision inside, so that you can translate it to every new outsourcer. Uh, outside the company and uh, i think uh, we experiment with outsourcing our support teams and uh, uh, we had a small experiment of outsourcing qa but i'm not sure that it finished in a good way so we continue to use uh, our in-house qa
0: Mm, mm, yeah that's (sighs) a I'm sure there are a lot of people who have great experience of outsourcing QA, but in, in my own experience, in-house QA is the way to go. But with art production, of course, that's that's the key uh, for outsourcing.
1: Uh, art production and support. So you know, that's the, the main aspects of outsourcing for us.
0: So, Vladimir, what's next for Pixonic? I mean, you were acquired by uh, MyCom in um, 2016. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So... What's next for because I'm just saying so that so that people listening to this are not googling and figuring out how to acquire Pixonic. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so what's next for Pixonic?
1: Um, we had this curse like many other studios, uh, like One Hit Wonder, and uh, we tried to prove ourselves that we can make other games, and uh, we had to shift all the uh, internal communications and uh, uh, the, how, how teams work with each other to, to, to orient it towards different games development, uh, to, 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 to developing uh, different games simultaneously. And I, I think now we are uh, successful at that. We, for us, internally, we don't perceive ourselves as the company that makes only one game, but that's up to the market to decide that. And we have this game, Dyna Squad, which is uh, slowly growing, and I really hope that it will grow one day to the size of War Robots. Uh, But uh, now we are focused on um, developing this uh, world of War Robots, if you can call this like that. Uh, I think uh, that one of the strong uh, sides of the game and the company and the project is that this, since we have a, a big community of people who actually love the game and continue to play it for a long time, uh, we can actually try to make more games in this and to build a universe out of out of this game actually, and that's what we try to make right now. But it's a very ambitious and a very big task and. Uh, if you if you look for instance on mm-hmm. the call of duty franchise it it has been built in uh, 20 years i think so it, it's a very monumental thing
0: yeah and and if you were a starter you would be talking about metaverse not universe so <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> of course yeah. Exactly. um that's 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 really great and um Vladimir, I, mean, I want to thank you for jumping in on the podcast. Would you like to uh, talk about certain open roles at Big Sonic or, or certain things you
1: want us listeners to take action <laughs> uh, on? You, you got me unprepared here, but I must say that we always uh, seek for talented uh, product managers. And we if, if you want to work with us as the game producer or if you have a game that you think we can help you to publish, then you can, of course, uh, address to, to the company.
0: And you might get a Sputnik out of it, so that's a, that could be a, well, not promised, but there's a chance.
1: So if you, well, act I'm sorry, one I, I, I didn't perceive this as the competitive advantage. Actually, this is true. This is so much true. Yeah,
0: there's there's a lot of talk about different vaccines. So uh, clearly, you can speak for the Sputnik and and. <laughs> That makes sense. Um, Vladimir, thank you so much for for joining the podcast, for talking in details about War Robots. It's a truly amazing game and an amazing process. Not not just amazing journey, the way you guys took it from a clear fail to a game that has made half a billion already and continues to be a very successful game everywhere else except China. One day maybe in China, but... but, uh, so thank you so much for for joining the podcast
1: uh thank you michael Uh, i i'm really glad to talk about the game and our company and actually i love talking about game development as a whole uh uh, that's why we we have our own podcast but it's russian speaking Mm -hmm. so i'm not sure (laughs) if your audience can listen to it but um that's a very interesting topic and i think that uh that's one of the advantages of the game development is the industry is that all the participants, mostly all the participants are willing to share their knowledge with each other. Yeah. And that's great.
0: hundred percent. That's why these type of podcasts exist because of guests like you. So, <laughs> all right. Thank you everybody for listening. Catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.